Hello and welcome to another and long overdue episode of the Burt's Books podcast. I think it's been a couple of weeks since I spoke to you last and I promised you my review of To Paradise by Hanya Yanagihara. Well, I'm afraid that that is not what you've got in today's episode, but instead you do have my interview with Dominic Nolan, the author of Vine Street and the creator of Abigail Boone. So you may have previously read a couple of his police thrillers before. Well, Vine Street is a big old chunk of a book. It's a crime noir set in the 30s, set in Soho uh, in 1930s. So in the run-up to the Second World War, and in parts during. It's an excellent, excellent book. Uh, took me a little while to get into, but once you do, uh, you're absorbed into that world. Uh, the interview with Dominic I recorded a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I asked him a, about the book. Uh, you can hear all about it on the other side of this music. I am joined today on the Burt's Books podcast by crime writer Dominic Nolan, perhaps best known for writing the Abigail Boone books, Past Life and After Dark. He has tried his hand at something a little bit different with Vine Street, which is coming on the 11th of November. Dominic, first of all, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Pleased to be here. Good, good. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about A, yourself, for people who don't know about you yet, and uh, then also about Vine Street. Okay, well, I've got uh, two books out, as you mentioned, the Abigail Boone thrillers, which were contemporary crime novels about a woman who suffered um, catastrophic memory loss and basically has to reboot her life. She was a police detective and she becomes something of a an outlaw, really, a vigilante figure who works with small-time criminals in order to catch bigger criminals. Um, and now I've written Vine Street, which is a bit of a sort of a change in direction. It's a historical noir, goes back to the 30s in Soho, and um, sort of tells a fictional reimagining of some real-life uh, murder cases from that time. So it's uh, So some of the cases are real? that you've written about? Yeah, there was, um, in 1935, there was the start of a kind of a little, well, the police thought it was a killing spree. Three women were killed um, within a few hundred yards of each other in the space of a couple of months, or about four or five months in Soho. And the police, they couldn't make any headway with the cases whatsoever in real life. And there was a lot of newspaper speculation that it was one killer. Um, which obviously London has history for at that point. You weren't that far away from the, the sort of Ripper killings and Radcliffe Highway before that. Um, so there was there was sort of a panic almost in the streets at that time um, about this killer, uh, but they, they were never solved, still remain unsolved to this day. I mean, it's unlikely it was one killer in truth, but the case has interested me and more than that, the location interested me so hard at the time, the interwar period. I was very interested in the, the jazz scene that was springing up at that time. You had a, um, a sort of migrant West Indian community that was building the jazz scene there um, together with other uh, migrant communities. You had, you had a big Jewish community and Italian community. So Soho was very much the sort of melting pot that a lot of London has always been. Um, and I was interested in using that as the, the texture for the novel and sort of spinning off a fictional digression 
from history in terms of the case uh, where I sort of well, sort of solve it, let's say. It's it's I mean it's quite a big old book. It's split into three parts and when you're reading them, each of them kind of feel like they could be a novel in its own sense. Did Were you tempted at all to make it a sort of trio of books or a smaller? I liked the idea of a broad canvas for the one book. Um, I mean, it is big, it's, it's sort of 135,000 words, 600 pages. Um, but I liked the idea of, of the scroll of moving through the years. I mean, most of it's set within a kind of a 30 year period, um, a lot in the middle of the 30s, 35 and 36. And then we move into the war during the Blitz and then just after the war, so you kind of get to see the, almost the ghost town that parts of London were after this sort of civilian exodus and all the damage from the bombs. Um, and then it, it moves out, it spins away from London into the 60s, it goes to Birmingham, it goes to Cardiff, um, it goes to the Cotswolds. Um, and there's a sort of a, I guess, a feeling of the aftermath of the war in that the characters had left what had always been their home at that point. Um, but I mean, yeah, you're right. It, it, so it could have been several books, but I think they would have felt different, isolated, because I, I moved back and forward in time so that, the, you know, where a historian has to respect chronology, respect the order of things. Um, a novelist can destroy time. You know, you, you can take it apart, you can do what you like. And I enjoy going back and forward and stitching different times together so that you can, you know, you can hide something in the past and reveal it in the future or vice versa, um, which I think gives a novelist some freedom and advantages that, that other writers don't have. You're right. I mean, you do have a, I think a, a broad canvas is a good way of describing it because you have some modern day sections. That's <clears> a bit set in the 60s and then it starts out mid 30s and goes into the 40s and that's kind of the main section and this yeah. soho noir kind of um sort of setting is is where you spend bulk of your time you are possibly one of the most well-read people i know certainly in terms of crime fiction uh how what was your biggest inspiration for writing that sort of 30s 40s bit did you draw on other writers Inspiration, I, I don't know. I mean, I've always been interested in writers like David Peace or James Elroy that, that tell, I, could, I mean, David Peace refers to his books as occult histories of Yorkshire. So, you know, that idea of, of telling the hidden history of the city through, through crime fiction has always appealed to me. Um, in terms of the time itself, I mean, I, I like mid-century English novels, particularly ones based in London which was a lot of them as publishing back then, certainly tended to be very London-centric. Um, so it was a place that I felt I kind of knew from a lot of my own reading over the years anyway. Um, and, you know, even modern people like, say, um, Penelope Fitzgerald, wish she would write something like that. But I like going back to Henry Green, writers like that, who, who wrote in London, who wrote during the Blitz, and, and going back to those stories. So there, there was a pretty wide range of, of influences in terms of, in terms of my own reading. The main character is Leon Geats. Uh, he's joined by Mark Kasser and Billy, Billy Massey, as she is at the beginning of the novel. Uh, those trio of characters are kind of really, really real. 
to me. Uh, you say that the cases that they investigate are based on some of the real life stuff that's going on and, and you have the Mitfords sort of turn up as well. So there's very sort of real life touchstones within this book. Were these yeah. characters based on anyone in particular? Um, not really. I mean, there are, I actually, I was asked by legal at Headline to draw up a list of the historical characters just in case we were going to get ourselves in trouble. Um, and there are about 60. There are about 60 people who are either mentioned or appear who were real life figures. Um, with the main three characters and Simone, I guess the main four characters, they're, they're fictional. Um, certainly Geats and Kassar were entirely products of me. You know, they're, they're granted agency by me. Billy Massey as a character is, is fictional, but she's actually named after a real WPC. Um, who was called um, Martha Massey Clearcorn, who, who died during the war. But that, that was more or less just me honouring a, a real-life copper at the time. Um, but the characters themselves are... I mean, to be honest, even if you write real people as characters, they're characters. You know, it's, it's not possible to write real people. I mean, I know, um, like, say, Hilary Mantle's Cromwell is her Cromwell. I mean, she's a great, a great respecter. Um, she insists on a sort of a fidelity to historical events, but she fills in her characters in the spaces between those, and they're very much her characters. It's, it's simply it's simply not possible to write a person from the past in that way. Um, so for me, it, I think it became easier for me to, to write my own characters rather than going back to find, you know, actual... I mean, at the time, there were so many different detectives, it would have made the novel unwieldy. Um, but some of the supporting characters, the, uh, the Flying Squad, officers in it were real characters. Um, obviously I have them do things that <laughs> the real characters didn't do, but um, but Nutty Sharp was a real figure. Um, inspectors Minter and Lander were real people. Um, Dalton at Cedar uh, at Fine Street, he was a real copper. So I colored it with, with the people that were there at the time, but um, yeah, the main characters were entirely mine. Did headline legal make you take anyone out? No, they're all dead. So <laughs> the uh, the general assumption was that dead people can't see you, but um, there wasn't. It, it, I mean, that's, it just I think all historical novels have to be cleared to some respect in that way. Um, and you know, at the start of the novel, you'll have your little legal disclaimer anyway. Of course. But um, uh, I mean, the the Mitfords are in it a bit, but I don't think I say anything about them that hasn't been said or made up about them over the years. I mean, I mean, it is very much. A melodramatic history that I've written, you know, that there's things that obviously didn't happen, you know, sort of accused the Mitfords of being involved in stuff that clearly I don't think anybody sensible believes they were. Um, but it was what I what I prioritized is authenticity over fidelity. So as long as my Soho feels like it could happen, that's what's important to me. Um, and to not let the reader know which bits did and which bits didn't, because I don't want them thinking about that. I mean, when I'm writing it, I believe 100% all of it happened. I think you have to as a novelist, even if you're writing the most fantastical stuff, you know, that there's a central truth, a human truth to what you write. And I think it becomes helpful to just believe at the time that all of it's happening. Um, and certainly when the reader's involved in it, hopefully, and, and deep into the story, I don't want them thinking about what might be real, what isn't real, just take it all as being real. When I read uh, this uh, a couple of months ago now, I I first I I'd just finished reading a British Library crime classic novel 
And uh, that was set in the 30s and it was sort of golden age of crime, but it was a very sort of Agatha Christie type tone to it. And I remember mm. thinking, yeah, this is absolutely how I imagine the 30s to have been, you know, these gentlemen clubs, et cetera, et cetera. And then I read Vine Street, which is at, at completely the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of tone. And yeah. I also thought, well, actually, God, no, this is probably how they really were. Uh, and parts of it are, I would say, quite grim. Did you <laughs> did you find that as you were writing it that maybe you ought to give them a bit of a break sometimes, or or did you think no, just pile it on? <laughs> I think I'm quite fond of punishing a lot of my characters, but um, I mean, I think yeah, it is grim. I mean, it's it's about male violence against against women largely. So I mean, it's it's a grim subject that the, the book set against but i think i i try to write it in a fashion that feels joyous i mean i think the book moves um i didn't want it to be austere or stayed or, or feel like that mannered past that you're talking about i mean british crime's a funny thing because in the 20s and 30s in america you had the rise of hard-boiled and noir fiction and we didn't really have that in crime fiction here really until the sort of 60s and, and 70s um the, the classical Christie-esque whodunit dominated crime till way after the war. And I think the real progenitors of, of sort of the gritty noir, the modern noir, is some of the social realist writers, I think, from the 30s. So, so we had, you know, you had Julian McFarren Ross, people like that, um, who were writing novels about the working class, the, the poor working class, the, the poverty in inner cities and stuff. And they weren't, I mean, they'd never be shelved as, as crime fiction, but when you write about people on the margins, criminality is a fact of life. So that I think is certainly what I see as, as being the roots of the kind of crime I wanted to write about at that time, but with a more overt, you know, it is essentially a murder mystery at its heart, um, but one that tells the story of a place as much as, as the story of the killings. So at 130 odd thousand words, 60 real life characters, a couple of uh, real murders that it's based on, how long did it take you to write and how long was the research period before you even put the first word down? It was actually something I've been, that had been in my mind for quite a long time, probably 10 years, um, but in different, different shapes, different forms. I've become, probably around 2010, I've become interested in um, Darby Sabini um, and his gang in London and I was most interested in how this gang of sort of English Italians who, who brought over Italian gangsters when they were running the city in the 30s were destroyed by the war because so many of them were put in internment camps um, because they were Italian it's sort of you know the, the heritage they clumsy blew up in their face almost um, during the war and I, I was I was interested in writing about the kind of street level guys and, and how they would have gone about their business of racketeering. Um, and then the BBC announced uh, Peaky Blinders. And it wasn't really the same story, but it overlapped a lot of the same sort of areas I was interested in. And for something I hadn't started writing yet, I just thought maybe I'll push that for a bit. Um, but it hung around. It, it wouldn't leave in the back of my mind. And. I started trying to reshape it. At one point, I'd set it in the West Midlands um, near Birmingham. Um, and it started with the IRA bombings in Coventry in 39 and then went into the war. And there was a particularly odd murder in, in the West Midlands in, in Warwickshire at the time where a woman was found inside a tree 
and I was kind of going to use that as my sort of true prime at the centre of it. Um, but then somebody else wrote about that in a novel, so context <laughs> again. Um, but what I that was when I really started to get into the the jazz community that this sort of nascent scene, almost subterranean culture at the time. And it was it was very small in in Birmingham. It was centred around the Birmingham Hippodrome. Um, it was bigger in Cardiff, Butte Town, Tiger Bay. Um, obviously, because there was a big West Indian population in Cardiff because of the port. Um, and Cardiff was a strange place. Sort of 90, 95% of the black population of the town lived in Butte Town. And I mean, ghettoization is is common in, in British cities, but to that degree, it was it was unique. To, you know, almost every single uh, member of the black community in, in Cardiff lived within streets of each other. And that gave it a very strong um, cultural identity, um, particularly with uh, Calypso music after the first war into the 20s. And a lot of the jazz musicians that started the big scene in London came from, from Cardiff, which is why I included it in the book um, later on. And when I couldn't set it around this murder in the West Midlands, I think that was actually kind of serendipitous. I mean, at the time you think, oh, it's a disaster. I've sort of had this idea, I've been working on it for about a year in the background whilst I was doing other things. And then, um, you know, as happens to so many writers, you know, people independently get, get the same idea or inspired by the same thing. But it allowed me to move the book to Soho, Lock, Stock and Barrel, because I've been looking at sort of moving little sections of it to Soho, because London's, you know, I mean, I, I live in Greater London, always have done. It's a city I know much better than anywhere else. I know Soho, so it was somewhere I was more interested in writing about, felt more connected to. Um, so when I had that that freedom to do that, that was when the book really started to to come alive for me, writing about that scene. Um, although when I initially pitched it to my editor, it was, he turned it down. Um, <laughs> I It wasn't a great pitch. I'm, I'm famous for my pitches, but not in a good way. I think uh, my agent and my editor will, will tell you. Um, writers, I mean, you may, you've probably had this talking to writers. Novelists can, when they're asked to talk about their book, can often go off on tangents that don't actually seem that relevant to the book. You know, like where um, a publicist or an editor would talk about plot and character and, and things that immediately get people's attention. Writers often focus on small subtextual things that have interested them. And my pitch, largely involved talking about the mood that I wanted to imbue the book with in Soho in the 30s. And I think it was a couple of minutes before I even got the idea across that it was a, this was a crime novel with crimes in it. You know. <laughs> um, and so he, he was very polite about it. And it was sort of, a, well, you know, that, that's a bit of a step away from what you've done before. So maybe we'll leave that for a few years and, and come back to it, which is publisher code for, you know, not in your nelly, mate. Um, but I didn't have another idea. I, you know, it wasn't anything else particularly I wanted to write. And After Dark was coming out at that time. This was just before the first lockdown, 2020. And I'd probably been about 18 months without writing anything for myself. I handed in After Dark very early. I mean, I handed it in over six months before Past Life came out. Um, and then I'd, I'd done some other things, some ghostwriting and, and different jobs, but I hadn't really sat down and, and thought about what my next novel would be. Um, and then when lockdown happened, it just seemed such a momentous thing, sort of unprecedented thing. Um, I think certainly for people of our age, you know, I mean, for something to affect everybody in society like that, I think you really have to go back to the war. Um, 
for something that was that widespread, you know, rich, poor, didn't matter who you were, this was something that was affecting the daily existence of, of everybody. And I just thought, and, you know, why would I not write what I want to write? Even, even if I kind of did a bargain with myself that I accepted this probably is never going to get published. You know, my publisher has said, let's not think about that. Let's move on. Um, so I accepted that. I was like, okay, this I'm going to do this, but it's probably not going to not going to come out. And it took nine months, I guess, to write. Um, I don't tend to write a draft and then redraft it a lot of times. I my rewriting tends to be boiled and baked into the initial process. So I might only write a thousand words a day, but that prose, that thousand words is going to be pretty close to what you see in the final book. Um, and maybe at about the two third stage, I'll do my own structure, let it where I know I need to move things around or whatever. But my, my working draft at the end of the process is not a million miles away from what actually comes out. Um, so that, that process took nine or 10 months. Um, yeah, my editor saw it in the, I started it in the April, my editor saw it in the start of February um, and offered on it. I mean, he did say if I'd handed in what I described, he wouldn't have offered on it. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it probably bore little relation to the actual pitch I made. But, um, but yeah, I was pleased when they took it on. I always ask uh, writers this because I think it gives us an insight into into the way they work, into 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 what they might be thinking of coming up with next. What are you reading at the moment or have you just finished reading? I had a pretty good time recently, actually. Um, I read uh, Sylvia Moreno Garcia's Velvet Was the Night, which is a, a noir thriller set in Mexico in the 70s during the Dirty War, when the government was, um, let's say they were violently dissuading people from disagreeing with them. Um, and it's about a... a a secretary at a legal firm who is sort of a female Walter Mitty character, but she has these sort of romantic daydreams. She reads these romantic comic books and then she imagines different terms in her life taking uh, sort of romantic overtones. Um, and then she gets, so she's this kind of very naive figure and she gets wrapped up in this intrigue um, with secret police, uh, a missing film that people are looking for and um, sort of revolutionary figures who are looking to overthrow the government. Um, but it's got that thing I love, the, sort of that, that mood that can be sustained through a book, largely through place, I find. And the, the Mexico City of, of the 70s that she draws out um, is fantastic. I also read um, Marie Rutkowski, um, who is a sort of YA and a children's fiction novelist, has just written her first adult novel, Real Easy, this is coming out in a couple of months, it's out in like January. Um, I was lucky enough to get a, a galley copy of it, and it's incredible, absolutely incredible. It's set in um, in a strip club, essentially. It's, it's about dancers in a strip club. Um, two of them are involved in an incident where one of them is murdered and the other one goes missing. And it's told from so many points of view. It's, um, several of the dancers... Uh, the detectives that are investigating the case, some of the punters that are in the club, the owner of the club. And um, Rukowski's, uh, she's like a, the English professor at Brooklyn College, but when she was at university, she danced. So this is a, a sort of a milieu that she's very familiar with, the book set in 1999. Um, but it's, it's the place, the time, and, and just the, the general feeling of how those kind of clubs operate, how women live under that male gaze and that feeling of male entitlement um, and what that does to them um, 
is remarkable. I mean, it's, I think it's a, it's a book that feels like it should break out in a kind of a Gillian Flynn type way. Uh, really deserves to do well. But yeah, yeah, January it comes out. So yeah, I've seen you raving about that. this one. I've seen you raving yeah. about this one on Twitter. I've, I've, it's on my list of books that I need to get a hold of. I think it sounds sounds really good. Uh, what is going to be next for you? I think for me, Dominic, uh, sorry, Leon Geats. It feels like maybe his story is told. So I don't know. That yeah. we'll see, will we see a sequel? I don't. Not in terms of the main characters. I think we're, we're, we're I mean, that that was another reason why keeping it all as one novel. I think it does. It is a life story, essentially, um, and, it, and it completes itself in that way. But certainly, I'm interested in remaining in London in the past and and kind of retelling stories uh, in the city using little bits of, of the city's history um, and telling crime stories around them. Um, so, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to talk too much about I'm, I'm in the early stages of something at the moment, but... Um, unwritten words are like smoke you know they're easily blown away so i tend to keep them pretty tight but um i'm looking at the 50s notting hill rackman race riots that kind of thing and do you think i mean when i've asked you this before you said it was time to give her a little bit of a rest uh let her recover a bit will we see abigail boone again any more plans for her i, I don't have i mean I, i've got in my mind what would have been the third book, I think, which will always be in the back of my mind somewhere. Um, I've come to feel glad I didn't write it then because as much as I put her through the ringer, I'm quite fond of Boone. And this one was going to be considerably darker than the first two, what I had planned. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of glad I didn't do that, I think. I think I, I don't mind where it's left. Uh, to some extent, a third one would be forcing the issue, I think. I mean, the, 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 for anybody who's read them will know that the, the stories of the two, uh, Past Life and After Dark, are inextricably connected. I mean, it, it's not like two books in a in a series. One is a sequel to the other. I mean, you can't read the second one without having read the first one, but it very much spins out of the sprawl of the first one and, and as a consequence of the first one. Um, and I think sometimes your characters you have to give it a rest like how many absurdly violent things can happen to one person in their life before you start asking some fundamental questions about them um so i think where boone is at the moment is she happy maybe there's obviously problems in her life still but um i, I think i'm i'm fairly happy at where it is give us if you can a very quick summary of vine street and why people should buy it I think if you like uh, Big Canvas murder mysteries and crime novels, um, it's it's the history of a city told through a murder mystery. Um, it's a noir, it's it's rich, it's sweaty, it's grimy, um, and it spans all told almost seven decades. It's, it's you know, an epic story, I guess. Um, but at its heart, it's a love story. It's a story um, of a dynamic between three people who get entangled with each other as much as they do with the crimes in the city they're in. And I think the, the vein that runs through the middle of it is one of love in all its different forms. Brilliant. Dominic Nolan, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Alex. So that is 
it for today's episode. My thanks to Dominic Nolan, of course, for sparing his time and talking to us about his new book, Vine Street. It is available to order at birthsbooks.co.uk right now. But if you sign up to the signed fiction subscription, you will get yourself a copy with a signed book plate in. And because it's a subscription, you'll get a new book every month from a debut or somebody who I think deserves a bit more attention than they're getting. So uh, definitely check that one out if uh, you like discovering new fiction. Also, check out the Burt's Books Twitter account, hashtag Burt's, B-O-T-Y 2021, or hashtag the Berties, um, because it is that time of year again where I am asking everyone to vote in the tournament to decide just who is going to be the Burt's Book of the Year 2021. Julie Cohen won it with uh, The Two Lives of Louis and Louise in uh, 2019. 2020, and it was a children's book, The Strange World Travel Agency by L.D. Lipinski. Who is going to win it this year? There are um, a few uh, in contention, but I wouldn't like to guess because I get it wrong every time that I do. I do know, though, that it was so, so difficult picking the list of just 32, uh, more so than in previous years. There were such great books uh, published in 2021 that I think, uh, yeah, it was going to be a a very hard decision. And I have still got to make my own personal list, my countdown for December. So uh, I'm going to try and work on that over the next couple of weeks. And of course, I do hope to bring you my review of Two Paradise. I am just struggling to find the time at the moment to sit down. So uh, I'll uh, hopefully bring you that very, very soon. In the meantime, please do get in contact with me. You can email me, Bert, at bertsbooks.co.uk or you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at bertsbooks. I'm also on TikTok as well, where I sometimes give a little sneak peek of the books I'll be reviewing in the podcast. Please also do rate, review and subscribe so that way you will never miss an episode. Even when it is a couple of weeks apart, it will just magically turn up on your phone or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Uh, In the meantime, please do keep reading.